consumer experiences, major disruptors, and AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on those issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, your host of Hello Healthcare, and we hope that these stories will help you to create or demand a better future in healthcare. Our first two seasons of Hello Healthcare are available on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our conversations with some of healthcare's most well-respected leaders in marketing, business strategy, data science, and much more. If you like what you hear, please share with your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, healthcare. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Martin Hickey who is a state senator of New Mexico District 20, and has served in a variety of leadership roles, chief executive officer roles in health plans and health systems in New Mexico, including the Lovelace Health System, True Health New Mexico, and many more roles. But today, what we're going to be discussing is a sector of healthcare that is often ignored, which is mental health. We know that mental health resources across the country are lacking, and if we consider any kind of social safety net, it's a very much a net where many people fall through with tragic consequences. This is going to touch into subjects around substance abuse and mental health. A lot of things that have been stigmatized over the past that are now receiving a lot of new attention and destigmatization as a result of a lot of the things that we've been going through over the past few years with the pandemic, bringing these issues to light and, and honestly bringing us to more truth about how we're impacted and how we suffer. So Dr. Martin's going to be discussing kind of from a health executive perspective, not only the the issue and size and breadth and scope of the problem, but where healthcare executives can intervene and ultimately where there is financial opportunity there. With that intro, Dr. Martin, I just wanted to give the opportunity to just give some of your background and let them know who you are better than I can. Sure, thank you, Chris. I think you uh, summarized the the area very well. I'm a physician, and I started my career not too far from here in uh, Salt Lake uh, in the Indian Health Service on the Navajo Reservation for seven years, progressed through a number of uh, different uh, organizations, ran the faculty practice at the University of New Mexico, became CEO of Loveless Health System. This is back in the 90s where we really pioneered disease management at the time. And also, I, I know now, had a phenomenal mental health, behavioral health component to our highly integrated system and large medical group. From there on to other roles and Blue Cross, what have you. And then I came home to New Mexico and started a co-op under the ACA, under Obamacare. And that co-op was a health insurance uh, company that was governed by its members. And in that experience, we decided that behavioral health just wasn't getting the attention that it should get. Substance use in New Mexico is just through the roof. Poverty in New Mexico, well, half the state is on Medicaid, and I mean, no other state comes close to that. And so poverty just exacerbates mental health, substance use issues. And we realized we really needed to address that 
issue in this co-op. And so we did away with all co-pays, co-insurance, cost-sharing, so that people would not be inhibited to seeking and getting care because they had out-of-pocket expenses. And those definitely turned out to be a, a barrier. We learned a lot from that. And then when I retired from that after eight years, I looked at the legislature in New Mexico and saw that there was no one with a healthcare background there. And uh, crazy me decided to run. Sometimes I have a little bit of buyer's remorse on that. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I did take that concept and put it into law in New Mexico. So there are your inpatient, outpatient medications, absolutely no out-of-pocket cost. Now I'm working on some other things. We can go into that later. So those experiences, and of course, you know, rare, rare, rare is the family that isn't touched by substance use. It's more prevalent than any of us want to admit, but the stigma, I think, is starting to go away. And because of the huge need, that's where the opportunity comes for health systems to get involved in mental health and substance use treatments and therapy. Been personally impacted by friends that have had abuse, substance abuse disorders, and I'm sure that there's a powerful calling that you might have too. And I, before we jumped into the opportunity and, and the, the executive focus, I was curious if there's a personal reason or basically just curious about the inspiration for your calling to address behavioral health issues. Well, one, as I said, in New Mexico, it's a, pan, you know, a pandemic within a state. And the need is just huge. And I, I've seen it throughout my career as I, that part in New Mexico. But uh, yes, I, I have children. I'm the son of an alcoholic. And uh, when it becomes more personal, you begin to pay attention. Now, I will have to say that uh, the experience in the family, sober, it's working well, but it was a long road and it's a hard road and it creates a lot of personal empathy. But here's the other key piece. As I present in Senate committees or do hearings and so forth, I always bring up that phrase, rare is the family. And it's amazing the number of people either in the audience or fellow legislators who come up to me afterwards and say, hey, I've got a problem with my, do you know where I can turn? People don't know where to go. And it's really unfortunate. And yet seeing my own personal experience in the family with children, the, the ability to get to sobriety and to a productive life, it is definitely there. But it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of interpersonal connection. I mean, that's in, in medical, surgical, if, if, if you're in a health system, you know, we do things and we get paid for it. This takes just human connection all the way along the line, uh, particularly in substance use, a year of sobriety at least. It means there's got to be constant contact. It's got to be said, that's huge opportunity for health systems to get involved. A lot of states address this through Medicaid. And yes, particularly in New Mexico, it's a huge population. But the prevalence of substance use is almost as much in families, middle class, well-to-do, as it is in those who have socioeconomic deprivations. And so, again, I think that with the stigma starting to go away, with the federal government realizing they're putting huge amounts of money into this, that 
there will be opportunity for health systems who have the capital to make the investments, to pay for the salaries of the professionals and their multiple levels of professionals uh, to become involved and certainly be able to do it. I mean, they've got to make a margin. You can't do anything Mm -hmm. in healthcare without a margin to invest in the future. I'm hoping that people who are listening to this think, you know, hey, where can I go? What can I do to get involved and provide this service to the community the same way we in healthcare have provided it for medical surgical illnesses for decades and decades? That's exactly what we want to delve into. I think that there's an opportunity to listen to these conversations. Being aware of opportunities that people may previously have been unaware of allows people to then shape their strategy, incorporate these these things into the overall plan for the year, three to five years, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about what some of these opportunities are and how these things are starting to take shape? This is very generalizable throughout the country. There's no no question about that. I want to kind of, in my experience, I, I always, being a physician, you want to you get through the symptoms and get down to the cause of the disease. And, mm-hmm. and in the treatments, you want to do the same as well. And if there's one word, if there's, you know, I used to teach at the University of New Mexico and, uh, and I, at the end of a lecture or a seminar, I'd say, okay, there's one take-home point here. And here's the take-home point. There's one word that is central to substance use, therapy, mental health, and what have you. And that word is connection, connection, human connection. And Think about it just in terms of what you've watched on TV or friends or what have you. You know, people have up and downs who are have uh, issues with either adapting to new environments, adapting to COVID. And I think COVID has taught us a lot that isolation and loneliness really exacerbate any underlying stresses. And, and that can lead to depression, to anxiety. We're seeing a lot more bipolar diagnoses these days. I'm not sure if we're more aware of it or something else is going on. And then of course, substance use. I mean, the opioid uh, epidemic is just devastated. And now with fentanyl and, and so on and so forth. And if you, you look back in therapies for alcoholism, which we've been doing with AA since the 30s, AA is all about a connection. You have a sponsor. You have other people. You always have other folks you can call. It's connection, connection, connection. But let's turn this into how do you actually build some sort of therapeutic process, whether it be capital investment and infrastructure or really it's people, bringing people on board. Let's use substance use, whatever, whatever the substance is. And... When an individual gets to, quote, whatever the bottom is, and and again, usually encouraged by friends, they go into residential treatment. That's a physical building. That's a 24-hour, at least 30 days, really should be 120. You have to take the individual out of their old environment or their environment that stressed them out so much that they are using substances to deal with their stresses, self-medicating, whatever the substance is. After that is where another huge opportunity is, and, and it's, it's developing in the country. 
and that's in what we call sober housing and where individuals graduate, so to speak, from residential treatment into a place where they're living with four or five others. Again, that connection, that peer input is huge. And then after sober housing into AA, that's why AA works, is because people keep at it and stay with it, or other organizations that people can be involved with. But again, putting the sponsorship of all this together and the infrastructure in in the housing is a critical part of it. I know in New Mexico, the state is not gonna go out and buy houses and communities, but systems can. And you can begin to find the individuals. Of course, we, we have to train a lot of people up because there is a huge shortage of mental health substance use professionals in the country. There's, it doesn't pay very well. We've got to address that issue. People say this is gonna be expensive. But here's the rub. If we don't treat, if we don't diagnose, treat, and support these individuals, they will come back in society either through crime, the justice system, therefore entering the justice system, or all of us eventually get chronic diseases. And those chronic diseases are three to four more times costly in individuals with an underlying behavioral condition. And so if we treat those underlying conditions, we will save so much money on the chronic side of care. And that is critical. And in the health plan that we started in New Mexico, we did this. Our emergency room visits, when we got rid of all the cost sharing, dropped by 30% and were lower than our competitors on an apples to apples basis. Our admissions to hospitals were down by 25% compared to others. And so actually it became a business. Essentially it was our business model in the True Health New Mexico to do this. That's how we made our money. So again, I think for society, there are definitely savings. And if we don't, there's gonna be a lot more cost. And the worst thing of all is so many devastated lives, not just of the individual, but of the family and all those who are close to him or her. Hello Healthcare is brought to you by Actium Health. Healthcare leaders use Actium's CRM intelligence to drive patient volume by activating patients and driving meaningful engagement. Our AI-driven solution makes patient outreach simple and easy by identifying and predicting patient needs. Learn more at actiumhealth.com. And now, back to the show. I'd really like to, to just hear a little bit more about the types of treatments that are being encouraged, the types of treatments that people can start looking to as effective means, especially if they hadn't previously considered them. Right. So let's start with residential treatment centers. That's basically a hotel, in so many words, where an individual is in group settings, day in and day out, very structured program. Again, that's a physical structure. It's not a mental health hospital per se. It's a a residential, as it says, residential treatment center. And it's for, it should be up to about 120 days. So then you have to bring in the staff and you have to have a psychologist, or you have to have a psychiatrist. Very often there isn't an acute component when people are going through potentially withdrawal. And that's usually a three to four day 
and that's in an acute care hospital. But then movement to the residential treatment center, there are some levels of freedom of being able to leave that center over that 120-day period. But you don't have to have all psychiatrists and psychologists. Many masters trained individual, and then what we call peer professionals, which are people who have gone through this, may in fact be somewhere later in their first year of treatment and sobriety, who then become in and come, become counselors. And we're finding that these peer professionals have the, because they have huge empathy, that people who are particularly in substance use, they can relate to them. And they cost so much less on a day-in, day-out basis. And it's also helpful to them. And so, there again, number of people, touch, connection, all the way through. Then there are people who run sober housing and intensive outpatient IOP programs. A lot of folks turn to that first. It's probably better after they've had residential treatment, because as I said, you've got to get people out of the old environment that stressed them out so much so they self-medicated with the substance. So then these programs, again, they're individuals, they're working with folks. But again, the, the person who is suffering the substance abuse has the connection with other people. And we haven't talked about the pathophysiology of, of addiction, there are, uh, as the AMA says, it is a disease. It is probably something in the neurologic pathways. Why do some people who drink don't have a problem with it, can do moderation, and others get cravings? I mean, it's just, and it's the cravings that are really difficult to deal with. And that's where other people, that's by going to other people and say, no, hey, don't do it, let's talk. Let's talk it down. And uh, I mean, it's almost like suicide prevention. You know, we're seeing a lot of that mm. you know, suicide line. Talk, 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 talk. So that's going to be an investment in terms of people. There's no question about it. But we've got to encourage people to go into the field. So we've got to pay much better than what we've done. So that's where a system, but then the systems can build the health plans. Now the health plans are going to go, well, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm going to drive up my premium. But the health plans are going to see such a significant drop in chronic disease, it will more than pay for itself. As I said, it became our business model. It really works. And so the investment, I mean, what, we're spending so much money on chronic disease and people with behavioral situations. If we took that money and invested it in people to reduce the number of people who are in crisis, we will overall society likely save money in healthcare. And so the economics turn out, but again, it's uh, shifting the focus of health systems from acute med surge over to the mind. You know, the other thing that's really important here to get across to folks is that, you know, we think of health as the body. The body is run by the mind. And we've just basically not paid any attention to it. I mean, there's James Freud, and I mean, there's more going on today and the neurochemical research going on and in mental health substance use is phenomenal. We're going to learn a lot more. And yes, there are some medications that definitely help both with uh, mental health, antidepressants, bipolar, uh, psychotic medications. 
Maybe someday there'll be electronic stimulation. That's Elon Musk's <laughs> nest. Foray uh, is into into neural transplants of some sort. You know, there may be some procedure around it. But right now, it's it's all about people and connection. But again, the investment in that pays for itself back to society by the reduction of chronic disease and the savings that are obtained there. One point that I love that you brought up was like, hey, we talk about the symptoms, but let's get all the way down to the cause. For our show notes, are there any papers or things that you'd point people to, to, to read about those impacts? Yes, actually, Johns Hopkins and the Pew Foundation is formally studying the law that we put into effect last year. That is, as of January 1, this 22, no health plan, commercial health plan exchanges can charge a copay, coinsurance deductible. And they're looking at the impact. There are tons of papers that demonstrate absolutely unequivocally. They've been done in academics and by Milliman, the actuary research organization, that if a individual or a group of individuals with just chronic disease, with a commensurate group of similar chronic diseases and a behavioral situation, that former group is three to four times less expensive. So behavioral health issues do definitely drive up cost in chronic disease. Other places for people to look. So, okay, interesting. You know, where else can I go? The Kennedy Forum, Patrick Kennedy, not Robert, but the Kennedy Forum is a place to look. The National Organization. It's, uh, I just became familiar with them. SAMHSA within the government. CMS and the Department of Labor for ERISA is now drafting rules about equity and access to treatment for mental health, as well as med surgical for all health plans. This is called mental health parity. It was started by my old Senator Pete Domenici and Paul Wellstone out of Minnesota in 2008. And it's grown through the ACA and a number of other pieces of legislation. Well, Right now, a health plan, and and unfortunately it's not being enforced nationally, but every department of insurance has the authority through this national bill. Every state department of insurance has the authority to enforce this. And a health plan must demonstrate how they are creating access to mental health services as well as they do to any other service. In other words, are they putting any barriers, prior authorization? They can't do anything more strict than what they do with medical surgical. And this is going to revolutionize health plans. They're fighting it. United Mm -hmm. fought it desperately. California passed a bill, Senate Bill 8. 55, if you're looking, 2021. We are, I, this year, my endeavor in the legislature will be to pass a New Mexico-specific bill that's got more teeth in it than even the federal bill. And here's the other piece. The federal bill requires health plans to have geo-access to mental health services. Well, if we don't have a whole lot of behavioral professionals, then the departments of insurance and federally, the health plans have to go out and pay more money to attract them. And so we will begin to see people paid in behavioral health, mental health, substance use services at the Medicare plus percentage, 100 plus 30%, as we do in medical surgical. So that's the other big revolution that's coming into health plans. And that's the opportunity 
for health systems. You can charge 100, 130, 140% psychiatrists, 150. They're very rare. It's just like any other rare professional. So there is a huge, huge opportunity to build these systems, bring in the professionals, train them up, and charge back against the health plan, and it will be supported by both federal legislation that's already there, mm-hmm. it's just not being enforced, and states as we begin to pick it up and enforce it ourselves. So given that there's this change in payment structure and funding that can uh, help support these efforts, which should drive down costs in a number of different areas anyway, what's your advice to the executives and the, and the teams there that are, that are looking to start to address this? Is it kind of wait and see on the legislation and funding changes, or where should people be starting and directing their focus right now? Well, they as providers, if they get denied, they have all the legal means at their disposal through federal regulation, including self-insurance. The Department of Labor has incredible work done establishing these guidelines. And again, I'll provide the reference to you so people can go and look at it and begin to see that in fact, that if a health plan does not pay for chronic or long-term treatment, which is what they usually do. They say, oh yeah, we'll, we'll pay for a few days and then we're out of here. No, and as that happens more often and the court cases come in and the right now CMS and the Department of Labor are both enforcing it, but again, they don't have a whole lot of personnel on a national level. Right now, if, if a provider isn't getting paid, they can go to Department of Labor or CMS, and they are by law have to investigate and bring the health plan into compliance. Here's the other biggie, why this is really big business. Medicaid managed care, because it's through a managed care mechanism, also has to comply. And you're talking about 130% payment for Medicaid treatment? Whoa. Mm. Yeah, that's big. That's very big. So again, huge financial opportunities. And I would look probably closest at California systems. I'm in the process of doing that this year and to begin to get more concrete examples of what the opportunities are. And I am encouraging systems in my state to, and I'll sit down with them. I've done this in healthcare. You know, what's the return on investment to actually begin to build these systems, the, the residential treatment centers? It's pretty simple math, ROI. And then the next step is to the sober living. And again, the attachment all the way through until the person is, is probably a year out. I mean, a year's worth of treatment and therapy and the demand for it. Mm-hmm is gigantic. On the data side, we'll look at the EU and see what they're doing to get a perspective on what might be happening soon right. here. And then your example for that is, is looking at what California's doing for a, a glimpse on what that might look yeah. like. Or Oregon is also another state that's moving in the forefront. New York and Rhode Island are also looking at parity laws as well. What's the best way for people to uh, reach out to you? The best way for people to reach out to me is at my email, Martin at senatormartinhickey.com. Well, hey, I appreciate you being transparent 
I appreciate you sharing personal perspectives that have shaped the type of legislation and leadership that you're seeking and enacting today. So big thanks for, for coming on and, and spending a little bit of time with us. Right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And for those of you out there, please do not hesitate to get in contact with me. I'll get you in contact with other people as well. And I mean, just think about your own family. That's all you really have to think about is your own family and the pain you're going through and the pain the individual and the family is going through. And there isn't always a cure, but there is relief. And it's about connection, it's about professional connection. And those of you who are in decision-making capabilities and systems, start looking into it and build the capabilities for it. I mean, it's almost like uh, when we got anesthesia, what that did for surgery. When we got antibiotics, what that did for infections. The same opportunity is there for mental health and substance use. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Martin. And until we see you next time, hello. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, find us at hellohealthcare.com and subscribe. Thank you. And when we see you next time, hello. Hello.